I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. A recent article in Nature Chemical Biology that shows it is possible to convert sugar into morphine with genetically engineered yeast has sparked public attention over the potential illicit use of the technology and the need for regulation. The work, though, also opens up significant possibilities for producing a wide range of drugs and the discovery of new ones to treat everything from cancer to infectious diseases. We spoke to John Duber, assistant professor of bioengineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the authors of the study, about the work, its implications, and what role biologists need to play in regulating themselves. John, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for your interest. Well, let's start with some basics. Where do opiates like codeine and morphine come from today? How are they made? Yeah, they're they're produced in plants called poppies, uh, mostly in uh, in just a a few places around the world, uh, in places like Tanzania, uh, in fields that have to be heavily secured, uh, and then they're extracted from that that plant. Uh, uh, and then purified to to be the the hospital grade quality painkillers. Well, does this present any issues in terms of supply or manufacturing or cost? It's it's pretty well optimized uh, and uh, it needs to be highly regulated, obviously. So the supply actually is is pretty good. Uh, it's it's more on the regulation side that dictates how much is imported to various countries. Uh, there is always concerns, though, with plants that you might have a change in a uh, in the weather that might afflict uh, crop. And like I said, there's there these fields are mostly in a small number of places. So, for instance, in Tanzania, if there was a really bad weather pattern, that could wipe out a large part of the supply. Or if you had a pestilence problem that given year, that could cause an interruption in the supply. What exactly does the the poppy do to produce these drugs? Uh, it's a natural product of of the plant, uh, so it already has the uh, numerous enzymes that are required to to convert uh, the simple simple molecules to these fairly complex uh, pain killing molecules. In essence, building on the works of others. You've shown it's possible to engineer yeast so it can do all 15 steps along what's known as the BIA pathway to convert sugar into morphine. This was something you expected to take years, but you were able to do this in a matter of weeks. Why is that? Does it suggest we're further down the road of being able to engineer organisms to produce desired end products than we might have thought? Did you just get lucky? A little bit of both. Uh, but to, to clarify, we... We in our in our paper uh, demonstrated being able to start with the common uh, inexpensive sugar glucose 
and do the steps that convert that uh, to a major hub metabolite called S-reticuline, from which all the benzyl isoquinoline or alkaloids or BIAs uh, are members of a stem from. Uh, so that, that S-reticuline is the last common intermediate that all of these BIAs share. Uh, other other groups have uh, shown the other pieces of the pathway going towards uh, towards the specific product uh, morphine. Uh, in, in particular, Vincent Martin's lab in uh, Concordia in Montreal has demonstrated going from uh, R-reticuline to uh, codeine, and then Christina Smulke's lab at Stanford has demonstrated going from D-bane, which is a couple steps before codeine, to uh, morphine. So you're right that all the steps have now been demonstrated in these three pieces of the pathway, uh, but it's yet to been done to put all these pieces together in one cell so that you have one cell that can convert glucose into morphine. And that will have challenges uh, that that will need to be overcome uh, to do that. Each of those pieces has inefficient steps that need to be uh, considerably improved. And we're likely to have challenges that we don't even anticipate for when we put all these together. Uh, but you're right. When I first started working on this about a year and a half ago with the very talented uh, graduate students, Will Deloche and Zach Russ, we thought it was probably 10 years away uh, from this being even a consideration that this could be done. Uh, and then when when our work was moving very quickly and we reached out to our now collaborator and co-author, Vincent Martin, and saw that he had that middle piece also moving very quickly in his lab. Uh, both Vince and and I realized that this is probably not ten years away. It's probably more like two or three years away. Uh, so we wanted to make sure that uh, that we are talking to to people that that are familiar with the policy world. Uh, specifically, we reached out to Ken Oy and Tanya Bubula. Uh, uh, I, I, I want to get to that, but but let me ask you something first. Sure. If, if someone had yeast engineered to convert sugar into morphine, how complicated would it be to do? What what kind of knowledge or equipment would they need? Well, that's what we we're concerned concerned by. That it's it's going to be very difficult to get to the point uh, uh, that two or three years worth of work is going to be intense intense work that would have to be done by an established metabolic engineering lab with know-how. Uh, so I don't want to trivialize the amount of work that needs to be done to get to that point. But once that strain was constructed, uh, if if that strain got into the hands of someone who wanted to use it for illicit purposes in making morphine, uh, it probably would not be that difficult. It, might, it probably would not be that much of a different process than uh, your standard brewing beer at home. This the work has some interesting implications. I, I think there's been a fair bit of focus on the illicit ones, but before we talk about those, I, I'd like to ask you about the BIA pathway in reticuline and, and the implications this work has for producing a wide variety of drugs. What is reticuline and, and what are the implications of being able to produce this in yeast? Yeah, so that's that's what we're really most excited about is 
like I said, uh, this S reticulin that we produced in our paper is the major hub for all these 2,500 natural BIA products. And this family includes many interesting molecules that have great potential for uh, exciting bioactivities like anti-cancer and antibiotic activities. But we've been hamstrung by uh, not being able to get our hands on a high concentration of these these um, potentially very interesting molecules because the plants that naturally produce them produce them usually in vanishingly small concentrations. So we don't have enough of this material to do the these promising experiments. I think that's one one of the main interests now uh, with engineering yeast, which we can engineer much quicker and much more uh, efficiently than plants. Uh, we, are, we have great genetic tools for reprogramming yeast cells, putting in new DNA into the yeast cells. And yeast cells also uh, divide, replicate themselves much faster than plants do. Uh, yeast replicates every about two hours, whereas everyone who grows plants knows that uh, that time cycle is, is far longer. So we can uh, we can start thinking about these yeast cells as little microbial chemical factories that can self-replicate themselves every couple hours. Uh, so we're, we're really excited to be able to make all those 2,500 natural products that we think will be rich in, in these exciting bioactivities. But we're also excited that, as I said before, we can reprogram yeast cells uh, pretty easily by doing genetics on them so we can insert, introduce to those yeast cells new enzymes that can tailor those 2,500 molecules with still different chemical groups to make so-called unnatural natural products. And those unnatural natural products might have even better bioactivities than the natural ones. So in essence, this opens up the potential for a whole wing of new drug discovery? Yes, that's, I think that's the most exciting part of this this research is that there's a whole new new family of molecules that we should be able to, in the very near future to produce in high enough uh, quantities to do experiments on and also open the door to making new molecules that we haven't seen yet in nature. Well, as, as you mentioned a moment ago, you and your colleague were concerned about a, a regulatory vacuum and ethical issues surrounding your work. You, you both sought out consultation prior to publication, what were your concerns and, and what advice did you seek? What, what were you told? Yeah, so uh, exactly. We reached out to uh, colleagues that, that we knew through various experiences. Uh, myself, uh, I knew uh, MIT professor Ken Oi from uh, the National Science Foundation, Sinberg Synthetic Biology, Biology Engineering Research Center. And uh, and Vincent knew uh, colleague Tanya Bubala from uh, their work at Genome Canada. And in both of those cases, we had grown up in a culture where uh, at every conference and every workshop that we participate in, the policy and ethical considerations are made uh, in real time. And we thought this was, in particular, a perfect example of when that needs that strategy needs to be taken because there is this very distinct possibility of a dual use for illicit purpose. And uh, we didn't feel that uh, that 
ourselves alone would be equipped to handle this challenge, that we need a, a broader conversation with both these policy experts and then reaching out for uh, regulation that should be taken and a public conversation. There's really two main concerns that we have that were addressed in this uh, nature commentary uh, by by these policy experts. Uh, the first is that once the strain is constructed, we're worried about containment. What if it what if it got out of the lab that's that's using it for legitimate purposes into the hands of someone who wants to use it for illicit purposes? And then the second concern would be if the information for how to construct the strain was accessible, publicly accessible, then how do we prevent someone from following those steps and re rebuilding the strain in their own uh, at their own location for illicit purposes? Uh, so those those were the concerns that uh, that we that we we reached out to the uh, to Ken and Tanya to to consider and write in this commentary and get the conversation started. Well, in their commentary in, that was published in Nature, they offered suggested steps that should be taken, in, including a call for new regulations and increased lab security and, and doing things like engineering unusual nutritional needs in, in yeast to prevent its misuse. How concerned should people be? And, and do you think those proposed steps make sense? Yeah, I, I think those are... Uh, those those suggestions make make a lot of sense. Uh, I think they would both uh, agree that none of these solutions by themselves are silver bullets. There's no perfect technical solution that's going to prevent uh, any risk of of illicit use of this technology. But we can certainly do these steps that they outline to make it harder to to use these. Uh, to use this technology for illicit purpose. Uh, I, I can run through a few of the examples that they, they suggested, if, if you like. Sure. Uh, yeah, so for the biocontainment, they suggested that uh, one simple thing that could be done uh, that we, we have the technology to do right now is to introduce into that eventual strain uh, DNA watermarks into the, into the yeast chromosome. So think of them as as barcodes, that if you did have a leak of the strain, a, a leak in the containment, that you could backtrack and identify where that leak occurred. So at least you could identify the leak, plug that hole, and and uh, and respond appropriately. Uh, they also suggested, as you mentioned, to uh, to stimulate research in making. Uh, containment strategies where the yeast cell is not nearly as hardy uh, as a as our wild type uh, beginning lab strain that it requires some uh, some other chemicals that be added to the fermentation and if you don't have the right combination of those chemicals added to fermentation then the yeast cell will not be able to grow and this is work that I think is is nascent uh, there was a couple papers in Nature recently from Farron Isaac's lab and George Church's lab that uh, that had the first steps towards towards that type of, of technical uh, solution. I think we're a little ways from having that be viable for this industrial purpose, but hopefully 
two or three years from now, we'll uh, be much further along, uh, starting with with uh, Isaac's and, and Church's great work. Oh, there's an annual genetic engineering conference called iGEM Giant Jamboree. At the most recent one, an, an FBI agent offered a scenario where someone constructs yeast capable of producing morphine. It was theoretical at the time, but he was making the point, if, if I understood it correctly, that biologists have to regulate themselves, that the field is moving so fast that they have to consider the implications of the work and take steps to say certain things shouldn't be done or need to have special regulation. How do you balance the beneficial use of this work, which is significant, with the risk that it can be used for illicit purposes? And whose responsibility is it to do that? Yeah, I agree with all all of that, that I think the scientists have to self-govern themselves uh, from the outset, and that's that's the first line of defense. I also think that as a community, uh, we also need to start this conversation with the government regulation uh, officials, because it's going to be a, a new era where a self-replicating uh, microbial factory is a little different than regulating a chemical that's either chemically synthesized at the bench or produced in a much slower growing plant that uh, that's easier to uh, to isolate into only certain areas. I, so I think I think it's it needs to start with the scientists, and and we're probably the at the best position at the front lines to see where the future is going. But I think we also have to involve these other uh, other groups as well. Uh, so there are practical things that can be done uh, for that scenario. So that was the second scenario that you you brought up of uh, not containment, but once once the instructions are out there for how to make this, uh, how to prevent someone from building it themselves, replicating that work. And uh, one very uh, concrete example of, of strategy we can take for that is uh, what is already being done for uh, for synthesis of pathogen, pathogenic DNA, where DNA synthesis companies flag DNA sequences that could be used for making a a harmful or pathogenic uh, strain, so that if anyone tries to order a sequence of DNA that overlaps with that flag sequence, that uh, they have to they have to respond with the proper regulation and the proper rationale for why they wanted that sequence. So we can easily add to the list these gene sequences that would be used for making morphine. John Duber, Assistant Professor of Bioengineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the authors of the Nature Chemical Biology Study, available as an advanced online publication. John, thanks so much for your time today. No, no, thank you again for your interest. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.